Good morning to each one. Let's continue to worship by turning our attention now to hearing God's voice in God's word. And to that end, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. That is where our text for today is found. However, to set the stage, I also invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 11. That's where I want to begin. It is a very well-known text of Scripture. As soon as I uttered those words, John 11, undoubtedly many of us thought immediately of Lazarus. True enough, that is the principal narrative in view. In John chapter 11, the Lord Jesus has these three close friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, siblings, and they live in the town of Bethany, and word comes to Jesus on one particular day that his friend Lazarus has died. Three days later, the Lord Jesus makes the, the journey to Bethany, and most of us know how this unfolds. He stands there before the tomb, and he commands those present to roll away the stone. And then he utters that cry, which has echoed down through the centuries, Lazarus, come forth. What is fascinating, oh, there are many things fascinating about that narrative, but one thing in particular is the response. I find it fascinating. Look at John chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he, that is Jesus, did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so here is a tremendous sign. A sign that confirms for all present that the Lord Jesus is indeed the resurrection and the life. And there are many people there who witness this sign. They are confronted with it. And some believe and some don't believe. Here's the question. Why? That's a good question. Why do some believe while others don't believe. Come with me now to the other side of the cross, the book of Acts, chapter 17. The Apostle Paul embarks on a series of missionary journeys. It, these journeys take him all over modern-day Turkey, uh, Greece, Macedonia. They eventually take him to the city of Rome. But on one of these journeys, he ends up in the city of Athens. And there he stands at the Areopagus. And as he testifies before a Gentile crowd, as he testifies before people immersed in Stoicism and Epicureanism and all of the philosophies of the day, he proclaims that God is the creator. He points them to God's creation. He points them to God's providence. He points them to Christ's resurrection. And he most certainly points them to the coming judgment. 
And so look in Acts 17, verse 31 at what we read. He that is God, this is Paul preaching, has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And so there stands the Apostle Paul, and there he proclaims the testimony of the Lord, the Word of God, and how do people respond? Some believe, and some don't believe. Why? In the first instance, it's a sign, something they see, the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. Some believe, some don't believe. And now we're at the other side of the cross. We're at the other side of Christ's resurrection. We now have the Apostle Paul on his missionary journeys. It happens in Athens, not only in Athens, but everywhere he goes as he preaches the word and as he proclaims Christ crucified and Christ Raised from the dead. Some believe. And some don't believe. I want to know why. Because you know nothing has changed. Here we are almost 2,000 years later. And you can pick up this book. And you can read of all the signs that the Lord Jesus performed. And you can read all of Paul's letters by which he penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And why is it ever since the days of Jesus, ever since the days of Paul, throughout human history, right down to the present, and this will continue until Christ returns, why is it that some believe and some don't believe? More to the point. Why is it in the context of this church there are young people, older people, there are some, many, raised in this church. They hear exactly the same thing. They share precisely the same experiences. They are exposed to precisely the same doctrine. Why is it some believe and some don't believe? For an answer to that question, we turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We looked together at the first five verses two Sundays ago. Our main focus today will be verses 6 through 16. However, I want to begin reading from the start of the chapter. And so hear the word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And I, Paul writing, when I came to you, the church at Corinth, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you 
Accept Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind. Of Christ. All the way back to the opening of the chapter. The first verse. Paul reminds them. Of how he came to them. You can go back and read of it. In Acts chapter 18. When he came to them. He did not come proclaiming the testimony of God. With lofty speech. Or. Wisdom. He repeats it. Fourth verse. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Now, Paul is opening himself up to misinterpretation. Well, Paul, he revels in ignorance. That's not what he is saying. Because he goes on to affirm in our text, beginning in verse 6, that among the mature, we do impart wisdom. And so Paul in verses one through five is not disparaging wisdom. If we think he is, we have misunderstood him. He is disparaging what? A certain kind of wisdom. He is differentiating between two types of wisdom, a heavenly wisdom and an earthly wisdom a divine wisdom and a human wisdom. And so Paul is not concerned with this human wisdom. He is not concerned with this earthly wisdom. He is, however, very concerned with imparting divine wisdom. And he tells us five things 
about this wisdom in verses 6, 7, and 8. Are you ready for this? Here they are. Number one, he tells us that this wisdom that he seeks to impart, it belongs to whom? The mature. Look at the opening statement, verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Well, that leads to an obvious question. Who are the mature? He tells us by drawing a contrast. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And so he is speaking of those who are not part of this age. He is speaking of those who are not doomed to pass away. In other words, the mature are whom? Those who belong to the age to come. Those who are not doomed to pass away. In other words, I'm belaboring this because it's very important. He is referring to whom? Believers. He is not referring to a class of believers. He is not saying there are mature believers and immature believers. The mature believers have this wisdom while the immature believers do not. He is categorizing all believers as wise, mature, those to whom he is imparting this wisdom. Notice secondly, that this wisdom is not, verse 6, of this age or of the rulers of this age. That phrase makes absolutely no sense unless we remember that Paul is dealing in categories. And as far as Paul is concerned, there are two ages. His entire worldview rests on this premise. There is this age. He calls it at other times the present age. It is an age that began at the fall, and it is an age that continues and will not end until Christ's second coming. But there is another age. At times, he refers to it as the age to come. Still in 1 Corinthians, just take a glance at chapter 10 and look at what he says in verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11. Now, these things happen to them, that is to the Israelites, as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Did you know you were living in the end of the ages? Man has been living in the end of the ages ever since Christ's coming into this world. It is the age to come or the end of the ages. It began with Christ's first advent and it continues into eternity. And what are we waiting for? We are waiting for this present age, which began at the fall, to end with his second coming. That means now, between his first coming and his second coming, believers live with the tension of being part of two ages. The present age and the age to come. The Bible also refers to this period of time as the last days. The, that expression, the last days, does not refer to that time immediately preceding the coming of the Lord Jesus. 
In the Bible, the expression, the last days, refers to the entire period of time between his first advent and his second advent. We have been in the last days ever since he came, when he inaugurated the age to come, and we've been living in the end of the ages. And Paul's point is what? That there is a wisdom that belongs to that age, the age to come. And it is not the wisdom of the present age. It is a wisdom that belongs to those who are part of the age to come, those who possess the Holy Spirit. And this is the wisdom that I seek to impart. And this wisdom can be summed up in one statement. Here it is, Christ crucified. That is the wisdom of the age to come. And all who are part of that age orient their entire lives around that truth. Oh, but to those who are still part of the present age, unbelievers, it's sheer madness, stupidity, absolute folly. Why? Because their wisdom is the wisdom of the present age. It is the wisdom of the world that is passing. It is the wisdom of those who are doomed to pass away. Notice the third thing he says about this wisdom. It is secret and hidden. Verse 7, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. What does he mean there? Well, at times he speaks in other letters in terms of a mystery. And what he is emphasizing is simply this, that this wisdom, Christ crucified, it is secret, it is hidden, it is something of a mystery when we think of the Old Testament. It is spoken of there. It is certainly prophesied of. It is promised. It is there. But it is not fully revealed. And the wisdom that we are now imparting was formerly a mystery. But now with the coming of the Lord Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, now that the age to come has been ushered in, we can go back and we can read the Old Testament and we can finally make sense of it. We can now understand what the Spirit intended back there. And we now understand clearly that it all speaks of the Lord Jesus. It is a secret and hidden wisdom. The fourth mark of this wisdom, verse 7, it was decreed by God before the ages, before the present age, before the age to come, these two ages that mark and define all of human history with Christ at the pinnacle, the apex. No, before those ages, God had decreed this wisdom for our glory. It was always in eternity, according to the eternal counsels of the living God. It was always God's purpose that Christ should die for his people. And it was always God's purpose that his people should share in Christ's glory. Here's the fifth and final mark, verse 8. This wisdom, says Paul, was not understood by the rulers of this age. That is self-evident. Why is it self-evident? Well, they crucified the Lord of glory. 
so it's self-evident. But here's the irony, and here is the wisdom of God. Their act of crucifying the Lord of glory is the very wisdom that God decreed for his people before the ages, before the foundations of the earth. And so it is the wisdom of man that is utter foolishness in comparison to the wisdom of God. Paul wants nothing when it comes to the wisdom of this world, the wisdom of this present age, all that is man-centered and man-elevating. No, he is part of the age to come, and what he seeks to impart is this wisdom, Christ crucified, the mystery revealed, God's eternal plan culminating, plan of redemption culminating in, centering upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it leads us in the text to an obvious question. How do we come by this wisdom? How do we get it? The answer is threefold, three steps. And the answer focuses on the work of the Holy Spirit. He steps to the forefront, if you like, now in Paul's discussion in what he is explaining. And he emphasizes this first step. Here it is. The Holy Spirit reveals. That's what we must understand. Where do we read that? Look at the 10th verse. These things God has revealed to us. Through the Spirit. Now let's get down to the nitty gritty here. Let's actually unpack this statement. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. And so the first obvious question is this. What has God revealed? These things. The expression these things refers to what? What he says in the preceding verse, verse 9, where he quotes from Isaiah 64, as it is written, what no eye has seen, observation, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Many times, sincere believers read this verse, what God has prepared for those who love him, and they immediately go to the eschaton. They immediately go to Christ's coming. They immediately go to glory. They immediately go to heaven. It's got nothing to do with Christ's second coming. What does it have to do with? The message that he's already identified, the wisdom that he is proclaiming, which is what? Christ crucified. What God has prepared for those who love him is not a reference to glory. It is a reference to the advent of the Lord Jesus. It is a reference to all that Christ accomplished through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. No eye understands this. The understanding of the significance of this does not come by the eye. It does not come by the ear. It does not come by the heart. Oh, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is what has been revealed, the content of this revelation. There's a second obvious question arising out of verse 10. Is how did God reveal this? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Why the Spirit? Verse 11. Well, still in verse 10, because of the Spirit who searches everything, even the depths of God. He's omniscient. Who knows a person's thoughts? I don't know what you're thinking right now, unless what? You actually tell me. So too, we don't know what God is thinking. We cannot comprehend his thoughts, except the spirit of God speak. And we have received not the spirit of the world, verse 12, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by 
God. And so we understand the content of this revelation is Christ crucified, the message of Christ. We understand the means by which this revelation has come. It is through the Holy Spirit. It leaves one remaining question in the context of verse 10. To whom was this revelation given? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now steady on. Who does he have in view when he uses the expression us? I think his epistle to the Ephesians is very helpful. There in chapter 3, he declares the following, the mystery. It's the same thing he's referring to here. The mystery of Christ. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. It was not made known. It was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit reveals. We know what he reveals, the message of Christ. We know how it is revealed by means of the Spirit of God. We know to whom it was revealed, the apostles and prophets. We now know what? That we've got it, and it's right here in this book. The Holy Spirit reveals. It is the faith once for all, delivered to the saints. Now, the second step, second step in grasping this wisdom is what? Recognizing that the Holy Spirit teaches. And so look at what Paul says in the 13th verse. And we impart this. And so these things, back in verse 10, these things that God has revealed to us through the Spirit... This revelation that has come to us, the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and and prophets. We now impart this. We are transmitting it. We are communicating it in words, words so important, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting. Spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. What do we have there? The word isn't used, but it's the doctrine of inspiration. It's akin to what Paul writes elsewhere, Peter writes elsewhere. In his second epistle, chapter 1, verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is describing here in the 13th verse. The apostles and the prophets, him in particular, were carried along by the Holy Spirit in that, yes, this revelation was received, and yet what they spoke, what they spoke transmitted audibly, and what they transmitted in writing eventually, this did not come by way of human wisdom. We were taught this by the Spirit. And interpreting these spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so we're clear on this. It is the Holy Spirit who reveals this revelation. It is the Holy Spirit who teaches this revelation and inspiration and the resulting what? Spirit-given words that we now possess in this book. And the third step in our attainment, if you like, of this wisdom is what? It's illumination. The word isn't used, but it is certainly implied in verses 14 and 15 in which Paul contrasts two people. Verse 14, here's the first, the natural person. 
does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so here is the inspired revelation of God. That which is taught by the Holy Spirit, that which came by way of the apostles and prophets as the Holy Spirit carried them along in the transmission of this revelation, the need for illumination because the natural person, that is the unbeliever, the person who belongs to the present age, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? They're ridiculous to him. It says folly. Would you get the idea? They're absolutely ridiculous to him, folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Do you know what this means? It means that a man, a woman, might be very learned, might be very scientific, might be quite the intellectual, and yet a stark fool when it comes to the wisdom of God. Sobering thought, isn't it? I have met, and there is no other explanation for it. I have met scholars. I have met men, masters of the ancient languages, right? Syriac, Aramaic, Hebrew, Greek, Latin. I have met men well acquainted with the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. I have met men well-informed in terms of the writings and the treatises and the theology of Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and John Calvin um, who do not understand all that they have learned because they are natural men. Do we realize this? Grasp the implications of what Paul is saying here. That when it comes to this inspired revelation, when it comes to the transmission of God's truth, when it comes to the wisdom that has come now in the age to come in which we live, when it comes to grasping this wisdom, when it comes to understanding it, when it comes to embracing it, the natural man has no hope. The natural man brings absolutely nothing to the table. Why? Because this revelation, these inspired words, these spirit-given words, this wisdom can only be understood through illumination. Look at what we read in the 15th verse. The second person, the spiritual person. So the person who belongs to the age to come, the believer who possesses the Holy Spirit, Judges all things. See, that individual, that individual, when he or she hears the word of God or reads the word of God, that there is something that happens inside that, that never happens in the case of the unbeliever, the natural man. They both, they both can hear the same thing. They can see the same sign. The Lord Jesus raised a dead man from the dead. They could hear the Apostle Paul himself throughout his missionary journeys. They can hear the preaching of the word ever since then, right down to the present. 
They could be hearing the word of God in this room right now, believer, unbeliever. And you know what? You're getting it cognitively. But the problem is this. The issue is this. It's got nothing to do with cognition. The issue is volition. And in the case of the unbeliever, there's all, that individual's already prejudiced against what they're hearing. Prejudiced, why? Because the flesh is at enmity with God. Oh, but the believer who has experienced the illuminating work of the Spirit of God, what happens? Well, there's something that happens inside, internally, whereby now they're able to judge all things. That as they hear the Word of God, as they hear the wisdom of God, they esteem its truth and its value. Oh, that is the consequence of inspiration. And that is how this wisdom that Paul imparts comes to us. Yes, the Holy Spirit revealed it centuries ago. Yes, he taught it by means of inspiration, inspiring the word of God. And ever since then, the Spirit of God has been illuminating the darkened mind and enslaved hearts of men and women here and there and bringing them to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and ability to esteem and to value what? Above all things, Christ crucified. Christ crucified. There's one more statement there in verse 15. This spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. What has that got to do with anything? What's the context? Go all the way back with me to chapter 1. What is the greater context? This is amazing. I mean, Paul, Paul is probing the depths of some pretty heavy theology here. And he's laying the groundwork for our doctrine, our understanding of revelation, inspiration, and illumination. This is pretty heady stuff, but never lose sight of his main purpose. All of this doctrine is serving a very practical purpose. Back in chapter 1, what do we read in verse 11? It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Go into chapter 3. He repeats his concern. Chapter 3, verse 3. You are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Go into chapter 4, verse 6. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. What is the greater context? Paul is dealing with a house divided. He is addressing a church that is about to split apart. And he's writing to a church in, in which individuals are quarreling and their root of their quarreling is what? Their desire for status. It is rooted in their pride. And in conducting themselves in this fashion, in behaving like this, they are acting like whom? Those who belong to the present age. Most certainly not those who belong to the age to come. And he goes to great lengths to correct their thinking. And in our text, he is still seeking to correct their thinking. And his essential point is this. My brothers and sisters, why do you know what you know? 
And why do you believe and others don't believe? Some of you are running around saying, I'm mature. Hence his use of that word. He's not very mature. I'm spiritual. Hence his use of that word. He's not very spiritual. And all of these factions have arisen among you. You're now fighting among yourselves. You are a church divided, a house divided. Let me remind you, and, and I pray, remind you powerfully that all that you know has come to you by means of the Holy Spirit. You've contributed nothing to it. And so he himself, the spiritual person, is to be judged by no one. Stop the judging is his point. Four, verse 16, who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Who? Out of Isaiah 40, who understands the mind of God? It's an amazing statement, folks. We do. We have the mind of Christ. We possess the spirit of God. We possess his revelation, that which has been inspired, and he illumines us in our reading and understanding of it, that wisdom has been imparted to us. And so we can just imagine Paul saying to the church at Corinth, my friends, my friends, my friends, then why are you still living like those who belong to the present age? Why are you still living according to the wisdom of that age? Why are you still running around? I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos, creating these factions, creating these needless divisions. I'll tell you why you've lost sight of this very, very simple fact. You don't know anything apart from the Spirit of God. A divine, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Uh, we are to be judged by no one. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? We. We have the mind of Christ. The immediate application of this text is obvious. Let me just ask a couple questions. I'll throw them out there. Are you a quarrelsome person? You need this text, don't you? Obviously. You're a proud person. This text will go a long way to remedy that. Are you a status-seeking person? Oh, this text brings some needful, does it not, necessary clarification and words of admonition. The direction I want to go in is slightly different. It is this. It's where I began. Why do some believe and some don't believe? Did you get the answer? I think it's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? Why do some believe? Ever since the days of the Lord Jesus. To the present. While others do not Believe this work of the Spirit of God illuminating grace, whereby there are only two categories of people over here, the natural man who belongs to the present age, the fallen world, and whose wisdom belongs to that age. And there is over here the spiritual man, the spiritual woman, who belongs to the age to come, that which was inaugurated by Christ and possesses this wisdom which Paul and the other apostles themselves imparted. There are only these two categories, those who do not believe, those who believe, yet possessing the same content, hearing the same message, perhaps even understanding it fully, cognitively. 
But how do we explain this difference whereby these individuals go in such radically different directions? It is the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. The question, the question that leads me to ask is this. How do I know if I am a spiritual person? How do I know if I do belong to the age to come? It's a question that uh, requires an answer as opposed to a natural person who belongs to this, this present age. I think a great answer is found for us. It's Luke 24, isn't it? It's after the resurrection. And the uh, Lord Jesus, as you are aware, makes a number of appearances to his, uh, to his disciples prior to his ascension. And on one such occasion, there are two disciples walking, journeying from Jerusalem to, to Emmaus. And uh, the Lord Jesus appears to them on the road. He walks to them on the way. And he notices that they're sad. He says, what's going on? And they're a bit startled. Are you the only one in the world doesn't know what's happened in Jerusalem? Uh, crucifixion, resurrection. They didn't realize it was actually him, his crucifixion, his resurrection. They don't understand. They don't know who he is at this point. And what does the Lord Jesus do as they walk together? He begins to open the scriptures and explains to them how everything, this is the mystery revealed, the secret and hidden wisdom, everything written concerning him in the scriptures had to be fulfilled in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms. Just an interesting side note, he wasn't carrying any scrolls. How did he do that? I don't doubt he had the whole thing memorized. And he just went through Psalm after Psalm and Isaiah and Genesis and Jeremiah and everywhere and demonstrated how all of this pointed to the Messiah's crucifixion and resurrection. But their eyes, they don't know it's him. They arrive at Emmaus and they say to him, why don't you come in and have supper with us, share a meal with him. Me share a meal with us. And over the course of supper, uh, he opens their eyes so that they understand, they see that it is Jesus. He immediately departs from their presence and then they comment to one another. All right, you ready for this? Luke 24, verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? That is a great question. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened, he opened to us the scriptures? What was that burning sensation? It was the illuminating work of the Spirit of God. That as the scriptures were opened, as the great mystery was revealed, as Christ himself imparted the wisdom appointed for his people before the ages, before the foundation of the world, appointed for their glory, as he explained the significance of Christ crucified in the light of Scripture, oh, their hearts burned within them. A natural person has absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. Spiritual person, oh yeah, I get it. There is something that registers. There is something that clicks. There is a light that goes on. There is something that resonates, echoes in the chambers of our soul. It isn't merely cognition that we understand. No, it is engaging the heart whereby we get the truth of what we are hearing. Not just its truth, but its value. This is everything. This is the difference between life and death. 
Eternal weal and eternal woe. Eternal salvation and eternal damnation. The heart burns a little bit when we get it. Oh, do we possess a deep sense of this wisdom's truth and value? Do do our hearts burn within us as we are confronted with the truth of God's word? Do they burn when we hear of man's misery? Man's misery. You are a human being. You are dust. And to dust you shall return. Genesis 3.19. You are a sinful human being. My mother conceived me in sin, in iniquity, acknowledged David, and it's true of every individual who's ever lived. You are a condemned, sinful human being. By nature, says Paul in Ephesians 2, a child of wrath. Does your heart burn within you when you come face to face with your predicament before a holy God? Our hearts burn within us when we're confronted with the excellency of Christ. Look at verse 9 again. It's a great verse. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Lots of people saw Jesus. Lots of people heard Jesus speaking. People today still see or read of his signs in this book and they hear of his teaching, but true knowledge of him does not come by way of the eye, the ear, or the imagination. It comes by a sovereign work of the Spirit of God impressing the truth and the value of these things upon our hearts, the truth and the value of Christ whereby we esteem him above all else. In Christ we see that deity and humanity are united. One person and two natures containing the perfections of God and the weaknesses of man. In Christ, we see justice and mercy secured. He pays the penalty for our sin and ensures God's forgiveness. In Christ, we see suffering and victory are harmonized. He suffers the shame of the cross. And he wins the victory over sin. Yes, face with man's misery, face with Christ's excellency, do our hearts burn within us. One more. Does our, hearts, does our heart burn within us when we come face to face with God's mercy? Chapter 2 makes it clear, doesn't it? Verses 6 through 16, there is so much in here, but one precious truth that just Rises to the top is what? Salvation, obviously, is of the Lord. Salvation does not depend on me. It does not depend on my deeds. It does not depend on my choices. It does not depend on my feelings. It does not depend on my achievements. Firstly, it depends on the Spirit's illuminating work. It is a sovereign work whereby the Spirit of God awakens in me a sense of the value of Christ, the truthfulness of all he did, all he said, and there is this resulting burning of the heart. It depends, secondly, upon the Son, not just the Son's illuminate, the Spirit's illuminating work, but go backwards to the Son's redeeming work. We're there upon Calvary's cross, Christ crucified. 
He gave himself as a ransom for many. And work further backwards. You, this, this text makes no sense unless you take one more step backwards, which is what? The Father's work of election. How, why do some believe, some don't believe? Why is one a natural man, one's a spiritual man? If being a spiritual person, part of the age to come, believing has absolutely nothing to do with me. If, if according to verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly, that, that was me. It was all foolishness and not even able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. It required God to give me the Spirit. Well, why did God do that? You work even further back. And you come where? To his electing love. You realize that in Christ, he chose us before the foundation of the world. And there we have a powerful reminder of the mercy of God and a reminder that salvation does not depend on me. Oh, but salvation is rooted and fixed in the sovereign will of God. Oh, it is good news, says one. It is exceedingly good news to know that the root of our salvation goes down forever and ever into eternal grace. And never gets to a point where it is contingent or dependent upon us. Our Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom for these things. We pray that as your word has been opened today, that your spirit might do his work of illumination. That you might grant us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of you. We pray that as a result, your people would be edified, uh, your church firmed in its faith, and your name glorified among us. We pray, our Father, that you would give us a taste and a hunger for this revelation. Give us a great esteem for your Son, the Lord Jesus, and all that he has done on our behalf. And our Father, for those unbelievers present with us, salvation is indeed a sovereign work. So we pray that you would be merciful. We pray that you would give eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive. And again, we ask it for the furtherance of your kingdom among us. In Christ's name we pray.